the Southeast Florida studios of the law firm Trip Scott in Fort Lauderdale, this is Politics and Sunshine, a continuing series of interviews with local and national subject matter experts tackling the issues that make you stand up. In this episode, Trip Scott CEO Ed Poswali talks to national pollster and political analyst Scott Rasmussen. Here's your host, Ed Poswali. With us is our friend, Scott Rasmussen. Scott, as many of you know, is president of RMG Research, Inc., and is working with Trip Scott with respect to the Freedom Index. Besides working with Trip Scott, Scott is a well-known national top political analyst and one of the most trusted pollsters in the country, and we're happy to have him. Scott, welcome. Ed, always great to be with you. Let's start with our mission of keeping Florida free in a certain sense. We've had an opportunity to work together and you've had an opportunity to do a second round of polling with respect to the Florida Freedom Index. Tell our listeners a little bit more about that. You know, the thing that we've been trying to identify is the commitment that people have to freedom. How far along a scale are they? And Florida, of course, with Governor DeSantis, has been taking a lead in being one of the freest states, starting with the pandemic. I mean, that was really the breakthrough. And uh, one of the interesting things we did this time is we also did a comparative survey in California to see how things measured up. One of the surprises, perhaps, is that when we ask about general attitudes about freedom, the tr- you know the trade-offs between freedom and government control or regulation too much or too little regulations. In a lot of general attitudes, there weren't big differences between Florida and California. But when we came to perceptions of where the states are, huge differences. 57% of Florida voters say that their state has more freedom than most states. Only 32% said it has less. California voters evenly divided. 44 saying that they have more freedom, less. So it's interesting. Californians don't feel like they're lacking freedom compared to other states, but they're nowhere near Florida's rating, self-rating by the voters. When we talk about questions of does your state have too much individual freedom or too little, too much government control, again, the numbers are really in this one pretty similar. 35% of Florida voters say they have too much government control in their lives. 40% of California voters, just over 20% in each state say they have too much individual freedom. So we're looking at these things and saying, okay, there's a desire for freedom on the part of most Americans. You know, freedom, equality, and self-governance are our founding ideals. But when we look at how people perceive their own states, we're seeing some pretty significant differences. And of course, Florida and California in many ways, are at opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. Yeah, the one, if I recall, when you did the specifics about freedom of speech and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and the right to bear arms, the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment issue was a divergence between Florida and California, the attitudes toward that. That's correct. And on the first three, virtually no difference. Uh, You know, Americans remain committed to those core ideals. But it's still worth noting that even in California, there's significant support for the right to bear arms. And one of the things that we see nationwide is a majority of voters to this day say that America will be less safe if only government officials and uh, police officers had guns. The one uh, interesting thing I took out of the poll was how the voters described themselves as the Republicans who more appreciated Trump's policies versus a more traditional Republican or more traditional Democrat. 
or whether they appreciated Bernie Sanders or identified more as a Bernie Sanders type policy person. And in, in Florida, by plurality anyway, people associated with Trump's policies and with a majority of Republicans overall. And in California, it was the opposite, where most people identified as Democrats and by a plurality, their voters identified with the policies of Bernie Sanders. Right. And what we do, you know, that question, the way we frame it, just so everybody's clear, is we say, suppose you have a choice between four presidential candidates, equal character and competence. What kind of policies would you like them to pursue? In Florida, 52% of voters picked one of the two Republican sides. 30% said Trump-like policies. 22% said traditional Republicans. When you go to California, not a surprise. Most Californians picked one of the Democratic options. What we see, though, both in California and, and truly nationwide, the Democrats are more evenly divided. There's roughly this equal number of people who say, I want Sanders policies versus traditional D's. Whereas on the Republican side of the aisle, the Trump-like policies, and again, we want to be clear, we're talking policies, not the person. The Trump-like policies have carried the day within the Republican Party. So that sort of leads us into the conversation about what we're staring down in 2024, presidential elections quickly happening. Another pollster I saw uh, had a head-to-head, or at least a Republican primary poll that had, in Florida anyway, that had DeSantis at 59 and Trump at 28 and Nikki Haley at four and some others at one or two. Does that surprise you any? It doesn't surprise me. Uh, Governor DeSantis has just won a decisive re-election victory in the state. People are happy with his leadership. They would like to see him run for president. So that doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, it would have been shocking if the results were the opposite. Having said that, you got to be really cautious about early primary polls. The world may look a lot different in January of 24 than it does today when we start heading into this season in a serious manner. And in talking about the Republican primary, there's some other names that have been banned about, you know, other than Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, Governor Yunkin from Virginia, and obviously the former ambassador and governor from South Carolina, Nikki Haley, as well as Tim Scott and some others. Do you see any of those folks breaking through in the ranks uh, or putting numbers up, at least initially, with comparative to either Ron DeSantis or President Trump? Well, on paper, this should be a battle between Trump and DeSantis and nobody else, given what we know today. However, you don't win a presidential campaign or a nomination contest on paper. It's a grind. I don't think a lot of people appreciate just what goes into a campaign the travel and the constant being asked questions. And what would typically happen in a campaign at this stage between now and the end of this year, one of those other candidates, and I don't know which one, there's really no way to know, one of those candidates will have the right message that clicks with the base at this point, and they'll be given a hearing. I think there's only room for one person outside of Trump or DeSantis to move into that lane. Now, what they do with it, And how serious a chance they have, I don't know. What we're going to watch for then is there will be a Trump-DeSantis battle, and I think that's going to be the the heavyweight fight within the party. But depending on how that plays out, there may or may not be room for one more person. And let's talk about the other side. If President Biden doesn't run, is there anybody who comes to immediate mind as a Democratic frontrunner? No. 
You know, one of the reasons President Biden might not run is his age. Well, that's a problem for Bernie Sanders as well. If the president were to step down, the natural heir would be the vice president. But there's a lot of Democrats who are uncomfortable with Kamala Harris. I mean, she came to Florida and said, we're going to give out hurricane aid to communities of color first, you know, as opposed to equal treatment. She would not be the top choice. And then it's pretty wide open. Don't really have any idea who it might be. I suspect if there is any way for President Biden to keep going and if the economy continues to do well, he is going to try to run. And if he does, it'll be hard to challenge him. On the Democratic side. On the Democratic side, yeah. And by the way, in terms of the general election, we can talk all we want about policies and ideas and theories. The stage is set by the economy. If the economy is going strong in 2024, the Democrats will be in good shape. If it's not, the Republicans will have a tremendous opportunity. Well, and there's a lot of uncertainty right now about what that looks like in 24. Right, right. How do you compare the chances of, say, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden or Ron DeSantis versus Joe Biden? You know, in the poll we did in Florida, Florida Republicans, a a narrow plurality, said that Ron DeSantis would have a better chance to win. And that's pretty consistent with what we're seeing nationwide. Independent voters believe pretty strongly, both in Florida and nationwide, that Ron DeSantis would have a better chance to win. In our polling and RNG research, we generally see DeSantis doing a few points better than Donald Trump in a matchup with Joe Biden. Again, we're early in the process, but the reality is Donald Trump did turn off a lot of suburban voters in his time in office. And that's an area where Ron DeSantis has a little bit of an edge. Let's talk a little bit about the freedom aspect of this. From a Republican primary voter, how do they decide what do you think is going to be the issues uh, that are going to tilt them, try to renominate Donald Trump or to nominate someone like Ron DeSantis? The question for primaries, there's always a, a tension between do you want the candidate who can win, who has the best chance of winning, or do you want the pure candidate who reflects your views? I would suspect that, uh, and we already see it, President Trump is trying to convince people that Ron DeSantis is not really supporting Trump policies. I don't think most voters agree with that assessment right now, but that's something that Donald Trump would have to really work on if he wants to get that impression across. However, Ron DeSantis starts with the perception that he is perhaps a younger version with a little more political experience who supports those same policies. And as we said, President Trump's policies are the thing Republican voters are looking for. So as long as DeSantis has the sense that he's doing that, he should be okay. How does Governor DeSantis work his way through this process and not upset the MAGA voter because they're going to need to consolidate if he actually does get the nomination? You know, I think the MAGA voters will not want anybody trashing Donald Trump in any way. They're not going to want somebody to go after the former president. Even people who say that who are perhaps lost some interest in President Trump as the nominee acknowledge that he accomplished great things while he was in the White House. So the first thing that Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, would have to do is to be respectful of what was accomplished and really create a tone of we're going to continue that mission. Second thing he has to do is make sure that in doing that, he conveys both an upbeat approach and somehow relates what he's done in Florida to how it would look 
as president of the United States? Well, the challenge, though, is as an example, I don't remember uh, any of the Republican candidates in 2016, particularly being disrespectful to Donald Trump, but he ended up pummeling them on the debate stage. Yes, you certainly have to stand up for yourself. You know, in the 2016 debates, very first debate, President Trump, then candidate Trump, was asked how he could be running for the Republican nomination when he'd previously given money to Hillary Clinton. And he said, look, I've given money to most of the guys on this stage. I'm a businessman. That's the way the system works. I expect something in return. First of all, that resonated with voters. Second, all of those other candidates said, oh, no, that's not the way we play the game. If you're going to be in that debate, you have to stand up for what you're really doing. You you cannot just cower and avoid that. But you have to address the charge, not attack Donald Trump. I find it interesting that one of the Trump's attacks, at least early on, about DeSantis really focused on Ron DeSantis' response to COVID, which I found fascinating and a really tough argument to make. Yeah, it's a tough argument. I think the Trump campaign realizes that Ron DeSantis is seen as a person who really stood up to the COVID regime. And by the way, did so at enormous risk. He was subject to a lot of attacks. He and Governor Kemp in Georgia were really the first two who began to challenge the idea that lockdowns were the answer. So I, first of all, I think it's very difficult to make the argument that DeSantis is going to be weak on that point. But secondly, that is a weakness for President Trump. If I was in the DeSantis campaign, I would think there's lots of file footage of President Trump and Dr. Fauci, and that would be in a lot of campaign commercials. So when you're talking about the COVID regime, you're really focusing on Dr. Fauci. And at the time when President Trump put forth or put forward Dr. Fauci as the expert in some of this. And, you know, let's let's be fair. In the earliest days of the pandemic, nobody right. knew. Nobody knew. Right. Um, but over time, you can begin to study the data and make some choices. I mean, other than the economy, do you see some of the international issues, whether it's China or whether it's Ukraine, Russia? or any other issue playing a big factor in the nomination process and ultimately the general election? I think there are three issues. Top one is the economy. Second one, I would broadly categorize as security. Now, that includes Ukraine. It includes crime. uh, It includes uh, the southern border crisis. You know, it's a sense that one of the most basic functions of government at any level is to provide safety and security for their citizens. And right now, there's lots of concerns on lots of levels within those categories. So I think that group, I would not focus on it so much as Ukraine or China or any individual, partly because voters don't focus too much on foreign affairs, but also because it's part of a larger picture. I think the third thing that's going to be a factor is what I might call a return to normalcy. President Obama, in his first couple of months in office, tried to pass a stimulus package, did pass a stimulus package. Republicans in the House were willing to work with him, and he just ignored them and passed his own plan by saying elections have consequences. That threw down a marker of my way or the highway. Um, And it's continued now for 14 years. I think people are tired of that. And so the challenge is, how do you embrace a little bit of a return to normalcy while still expressing your commitment to core principles? And for a Republican, that means core conservative principles like freedom. 
Well, I mean, the security issue certainly was reflected in the defeat of Lori Lightfoot in Chicago as mayor. Right. And it was also reflected, I thought, one of the more interesting dynamics in Congress was their vote on the D.C. law and forcing President Biden to say, yeah, I'm going to go along with this. I think that's a real indication of how nervous the Democrats are about this issue. So, Scott, let me go back and we'll end with the freedom piece. What do we anticipate the next quarter of polling to look at attitudes around freedom? Do we see anything? Maybe we need to focus a little bit more on some of the security issues about what level of government we should have to protect me from getting hit over the head with a club when I'm walking down the street. I think that's a great angle to explore. You know, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the country, Alexander Hamilton, I think it was Federalist 8, I might be off on the number, said that the greatest risk to the experiment they were undertaking at that time was that people will always sacrifice their individual freedom for security, for safety. And so therefore, you know, if if a threat is perceived, people will sacrifice their freedom. We saw some of that actually in the pandemic, um, and we're seeing other things. So that tension is very real, and it's part of what we'll be going through. I think that's a great thing to explore. But the other is going to be this, how do we explain that California and Florida, their voters have similar core beliefs about what freedom should look like, but such different perceptions of what's going on in their state? And I will tell you that similarity of the attitudes, you know, if you had asked me before we did the survey, I would have said, well, Floridians are going to be more committed to freedom and Californians are going to be more committed to government control. Didn't turn out that way. And then wasn't it uh, Benjamin Franklin who said, if you give up a little freedom for security, you get neither? <laughs> That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we did. We, I think we need to sort of remember that a little bit. And maybe that should be reflected in our next round of polling. I think so. And one other thing I would suggest, you know, I I always talk about our founding ideals as freedom, equality, and self-governance. When we talk about individual freedom, some of the time we're just talking about things that take place in the private sphere. But a lot of our freedoms are directly related to that sense of self-governance, the reliance upon a series of institutions, whether it's businesses or state and local governments. They all play a role in our ability to govern our society. Those institutions are sometimes under assault, and that's something else we might want to take a look at. The basics of the Constitution, the basics of the flag as a symbol, even the common history of some of our founders and how the country came to be. How the country came to be, and then also how right now in the social media era, we can contact and interact directly with government officials because they tweet something and we can tweet back. We don't have those mediating institutions that really stabilize our country. Yeah, the other question maybe to explore is, do we believe that capitalism is still a core value in the success of America? We can certainly check that out. Scott, thank you again for joining us. It's great working with you. We do really appreciate the relationship that we have with you and your team. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Happy to do so, Ed, and look forward to getting the next survey in and and having something more to talk about. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Politics and Sunshine is a production of the Fort Lauderdale law firm Trip Scott, serving Florida and beyond for over 50 years. A reminder that this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute legal or professional advice. No user should act on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without obtaining proper legal or other professional advice specific to their situation. 
please be sure to like and share this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of Trip Scott's Politics and Sunshine.